This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Based on shocking true events, the new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, tells the story of a savage murder in a small town. Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays only on Hulu. If you're looking for a charming romantic comedy, consider checking out the Netflix series Smiley. Set in Barcelona, it follows Alex and Bruno, two very different men who meet and experience an overwhelming attraction that they then, as they must, struggle with enormously. Alex ends up in Bruno's phone as Alex Two Jims. Bruno ends up in Alex's phone as Bruno Snob. Can these two ever find happiness? I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Linda Holmes. And today we're talking about Smiley on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to improving lives through invention, innovation, and climate action. It's just the two of us today, Glenn. I am happy Mm -hmm. to be here with you talking about Smiley. Me too, you. This story is set in Barcelona. Parts of it are in Spanish and parts are in Catalan, which is very true to Barcelona. It was written by Guillem Clua and is based on his play of the same name. It stars Carlos Cuevas as Alex, who's focused on going to the gym and on having fun and whose favorite movie is Frozen. And Mickey Esbarbe plays Bruno, a shire, squarer architect who cannot believe any adult's favorite movie is Frozen. The two men meet through a misunderstanding. They have one remarkable encounter, and then they go off in separate directions, but they cannot stop thinking about each other. Alex also has a widowed mother he adores, who has recently reconnected with a man from her past, as well as a best friend, Vero, whose relationship with her girlfriend, Patri, is teetering just as they prepare to move into a new apartment together. Vero is also in conflict with Javi, the sometime drag performer with whom she co-owns the bar where Alex works. As for Bruno, his straight best friend, Albert, is married with three beautiful kids, but Albert's approaching midlife crisis is potentially going to be a problem. Over the course of eight roughly half-hour episodes, all of these stories have their moments both bitter and sweet, touching a lot of rom-com standard bases along the way, including misunderstandings, misconnections, bad timing, and yes, New Year's Eve. Smiley is streaming now on Netflix. Glenn, tell me about how you feel about Smiley. I am surprised. Okay. Uh, Let me just say that the Netflix algorithm has serve this up to me all over the holidays as kind of the banner autoplay feature. You know, as soon as you open the app, it's there and it's annoying and it's on autoplay. And for a long time, I have resented the Netflix algorithm for pandering to me. For years, the tiles it shows me for any given movie or television show are gay baiting me. It can be literally the most depressing documentary, three hour long about the plight of workers in Swedish herring fisheries. And if there's a single scene where, like, Jürgen on the dock whips off his sweater and he's standing there and, like, 
bare-chested with glistening and fish guts. That's the tile it shows me? Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. no. Uh, and I'm on record, as we've talked about. It's not having rom-coms as my thing. So my adversarial relationship with the Netflix algorithm is longstanding. So over the break, we were looking for something to watch. And I was like, this is going to suck, but let's try it. I'll give it 10 minutes. And we burned through it in an afternoon. And I, too, Linda, was wondering exactly why. Because as you mentioned, yeah. the view from 30,000 feet of this thing is, well, it's a lot of rom-coms, but it's every gay rom-com in history. It's the main couple from two different backgrounds, the supportive mom, the lesbian friends. The drag queen is this kind of neutered uh, Greek chorus who observes everything and comments on everything. So there's the plot, which is on rails. But from the jump, Linda, I felt that the scene-by-scene -scene writing, the dialogue was filled with real lived experience. And here's the thing that I probably got to me, lived adult experience. And I'm not holding anything against the heart stoppers of the world. The heart stoppers of the world mm -hmm. are doing good work for the people who so desperately need them, especially now. Sure. But queer life isn't just coming out and coming of age. It is negotiating relationships, negotiating sex. And this show is filled with adults having adult conversations, having actual sex, and having adult conversations about actual sex. That feel knowing and intimate and real, I guess, at the end of the day. And I want to say anyone can write about anything. I firmly believe that. Queers can write about straights. Straights can write about queers. There is a difference, I think, between dramatizing something you've observed or imagined and something you've actually lived. It was clear from the jump that the calls were coming from inside the house. Yeah. That's what made it different for me. Because, like, if I'm going to sit down with you and you're going to say, here's a romantic comedy that I really loved, I sort of expect for you to say, well, you know, Linda, it defied these expectations that I have about romantic comedies because there's a little thing called stakes and something like that. Something okay, where you're okay. sort of going to talk. It's uncanny, by the way. <laughs> something where you're sort of going to talk about the story structure kind of overcoming the tropes. They fly directly into the tropes in this whole thing, right? Yeah, they do. This has um, a trope that actually sometimes is difficult for me, which is the we see each other once. And then for the vast majority of this show, they're not together. <laughs> they're off in their own worlds. That's the Sleepless in Seattle thing modified for the fact that they do at least get together once at the beginning. But for most of this, you're talking about people pining who don't really know each other. Sure. What it made me think about was the conversation that you and I had about Schitt's Creek and your difficulty with the David and Patrick relationship on the basis that getting together with the first dude that you ever have a relationship with is a bad yeah. idea. I think you can look at this Alex and Bruno relationship and be like, well, that's not exactly the best way to get into a healthy relationship either in the sense that it gets very emotionally heightened mm -hmm. for people who have spent very little time together and had very little time to figure anything out about compatibility. This even for me is a little bit like you know, is this a little too rom-commy for my rom-com self? So the last thing I expected was for this to hit notes with you. And one of the things that I really noticed about it, and it's interesting what you said about anybody can write about anything, was being cognizant of the fact that it was not aimed at me, right? That is not to say it is not for me, and that is not sure. to say that I don't love it. But you can sometimes feel when a show that is meant to be an expansion of representation for at least some mm -hmm. people, right? And this is, if you happen to live in Barcelona and be gay, this isn't necessarily like 
hooray, representation. This is just people in your community. Sure. This, for me, is definitely, like, outside of my experience. But there are times when something is outside your experience, but you can tell that your hand is being held. Mm -hmm. And I did not feel that in this show, which I think is a very good thing, which I think tends to make things better and more interesting and more lived in. I do want to talk to you about the conversation, the first text that I sent you about this show Mm -hmm. when I started watching it. Because the idea is, well, you can explain these guys probably better than I can. Alex is the gym guy Mm -hmm. and Bruno is the more kind of nerdy guy. Right. And they're both hot. Well, actually, no, they're not. Here's, Here's the thing that you said both of these guys are attractive. I'm supposed to believe that Bruno isn't isn't attractive. And I said, ah, you fell for the trap. Because one thing this gets about gay life is that there is a gulf separating Alex and Bruno that might not be readily apparent to people outside the gay community. Both of these men are attractive. Alex is hot. Bruno is cute. And hotness, unfortunately, but this is the the, the world we live in, is a very specifically defined thing. And people who belong to the gay subset, sub-sub-subset that Alex belongs to, chiseled, muscular, handsome, something is very true about that. They are both lusted after by the community at large, but they are also resented and judged, which is something the show touches on. And, And they're seen in a way that's limiting. Exactly. It has its roots in the physical, of course, but something the writer and the director and especially the actors get in really smart ways is how the physical shapes behavior, shapes everything else. So as Alex... Carlos Cuevas carries himself with a very familiar kind of outward confidence and unselfconsciousness that is, in fact, the most self-conscious thing in the world because that body has been obsessed over. It has been sculpted. And he's showing it off in this seemingly nonchalant way that is actually so frickin' chalant. It's the most chalant thing. Chalant, it's yeah. chalant all day. Yeah. And as Bruno... Mickey Esparbe is uncomfortable in his skin, but as soon as he starts talking, he's completely at ease because that's the thing he's obsessed over, right? When he walks into Alex's bar, he is radiating this discomfort that can easily pass for condescension, often is mistaken for condescension. And in Bruno's case, there's a little bit of condescension there. Sure. But his performatively unselfconscious, incredibly self-conscious thing is his intellect, his taste in movies, right? And that's the identity that he has obsessed over. And the world works this way, Linda. The gay world works where most of us are Brunos. And we may hook up with an Alex in our youth. In the end of the day, Alex's find Alex's, Bruno's find Bruno's. And this show knows and shows exactly why that is that first conversation they have. That's when I keyed into this show. Alex pretends to know all the films that Bruno was talking about. And then Alex, in perfectly good faith, tries to connect with Bruno by talking about a topic that he's obsessed with and he thinks everyone will be interested in, which is how he has to go to two gyms (laughs) because his one gym doesn't have machines to train delts and traps. You can't have three calf machines, but nowhere to train shoulders. We should complain. And then you get Bruno in that same conversation going, yes, that's, that's, that's unacceptable. We should complain. When I was a younger man, Linda, I had to feign interest in so many conversations like that. And I'm sure there were Alex's who had to pretend to be interested in, in my theories about um, the Legion of Superheroes or whatever. But this brings me back to what I think sets the show apart is the sex It's not an afterthought. It's not a function of the romance. It drives the romance. The sex is the thing that indicates both to them and to us that there is something real here. It is gratifyingly sex positive. It doesn't apologize for the sex. The sex is the thing. Yay sex, the show says, and I'm all for it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because obviously I, I defer to your wisdom on the operation of gay dating world and... I defer to your wisdom about, obviously, gay sex world. Um, (laughs) 
Great theme park, by the way. <laughs> Check out the holiday specials. Um, but I think what I really appreciated about this is, as you say, there is a real balancing of physicality and kind of great conversation that I think often is missing from a lot of romantic comedy. Uh-huh. A lot of romantic comedy lives in dialogue, right? Yep. And that is a thing that I love about it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with a, a very, very talky movie. Heaven knows I have essentially brought myself up as a movie viewer with movies that are very talky. Sure. But I think most people in real life have a greater balance of the physical and the cerebral than you see in the average in the average rom-com. Right. And that probably has something to do, again, with who it's being pitched to. Uh-huh. I think you're absolutely right in spotlighting the adult nature of this. And I do want to talk about one other thing, which is uh, you were saying that you didn't really care about the subplots, the the mother and the friend Vero and her girlfriend, the straight friends. And I did also, the other thing I texted you about this show was like, man, I don't necessarily think being straight is this bad. Like, <laughs> I'll defer to your wisdom there. It's fascinating <laughs> to me how much the people in this show, especially in one conversation, Vero and, and Patri, define their relationships in opposition to what straight marriages are like. I did care about the, less about the straight friends, I guess, but I did care about Vero and the girlfriend. Where did you kind of come down on the this kind of side quests? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, it's the dude going through a middle age crisis, didn't care about that. Um, the, the stuff with the drag queen and, and the lesbian couple, I mean, like those conversations are real. That is some of the negotiation that happens mm-hmm. in a queer culture where we say, you know, why are, why are we adopting these, the marriage tropes when we could we could literally define ourselves in any way? And that's, again, there are scenes where after Alex and Bruno have hooked up and they've gone on and moved on with other people, where they have to hang out in a group with each other. And this is very YA. All of that, all those raw edges and lingering tensions, I love how they color every word they say to each other and how every move they make. And it speaks to also to, to a thing that, that is often sort of hinted at, but not really addressed, which is how gay friendships can be colored by attraction, even if they aren't defined by it. Mm-hmm. Another thing the show does really well is it allows Bruno to be condescending and dismissive of Alex in a way that felt true to me, but also show that he's doing that to protect himself as much as anything else. The thing I love most about the show is that Alex gets to have a great time with the fish market guy. Because the fish market guy is hot and belongs to exactly the same cohort. They're two Alexes. And, you know, he's hoping for something more. But a question I had for you, and this this could be a tangent. This might not go anywhere. But I, it's, it's your question because I don't know the answer. The DNA of the main conflict on this show, Linda, is that there are two different worlds that these characters come from. Sure. Two different brands of attractiveness. And that is exactly the same place that Bros and Heartstopper and thousands of gay rom-coms have come from. Trick back in the day. But in gay rom-coms, it strikes me that the two different worlds stay different. Right. Right? So at the end of the show, they haven't really changed. Like Bruno isn't doing Bulgarian split thrusts and and, and uh, Alex isn't reading Cahir du Cinema. They're still the same people. It strikes me that in straight rom-coms – when people come at it from two different perceived levels of attractiveness or kinds of attractiveness, there is a makeover involved. The glasses come off, the the hair comes down. Yes. Is that fair to say? Is that a thing? You know, I think it is. And I think that, I think you're putting your finger on something that's very real, which is partly that the conviction that people from two different levels or types of attractiveness can come together in a straight rom-com often turns out to be 
that the sort of different or lesser, shall we say, mm. physical attractiveness in one person is misleading. Yeah. Right? It's a beauty and the beast thing where if you get together <laughs> with the person, this is my, always my issue with beauty and the beast stories is sure. at the end they turn into a handsome person. Yeah, Whereas in yeah. reality, if you learn to love the beast or whatever because of who they really are on the inside, they don't in the end turn into a handsome person. Right. So there is a sort of fraud in the idea that this is very like Barbara Streisand and the mirror has two faces and obviously the makeover movies like she's all that and things like that. You get the makeover and you will often get also like, not always, but very often it's the attractive man and the kind of mousy woman. Mm -hmm. It will always be implied that he learned from her and in some ways became more like her. But there is always a negotiation that tends to go in favor of she becomes more his ideal. Greece is a classic for this, right? I was going to say. Why she shows up at the end in the leather. And he shows up in the sweater, but he takes the sweater mm -hmm. off. Because the negotiation is ultimately, no, we're going to land in your world. Whereas I think the thing with Alex and Bruno is they don't really land squarely in either person's world. And right. That is partly because they are adult and because the the story is an adult story. But I think you're right that when you see these mismatched kind of from two different worlds straight rom-coms, not always. Mm -hmm. You know, even at the end of Pretty Woman, she's kind of now she's wearing different clothes and sure. she's – when she's being rescued with roses and such – She's become different. It's Pygmalion, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a transformation. And mm -hmm. I think it's also partly because the Hollywood film is not willing to leave a, a woman who doesn't look conventionally attractive to them mm -hmm. as a happy and fulfilled woman with a sex life if she still looks that way. Right. That the victory is that you become attractive and therefore someone loves you, as opposed to saying someone loves you exactly as you are. That is the seductive power of Colin Firth in Bridge Jones' diary saying, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. as you are, and how magical that is to her, despite the fact that she is also very conventionally attractive. <laughs> Let us not be ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. But in theory, that's a very compelling idea because to her, that's what she's trying to do. Become beautiful so that someone will love me. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely putting your finger on something very true. I, abs I never say you would never see this in a straight rom-com because there's too much work out there by too many people who have been all over this. You do find it in books, I will say. Sure. Straight sure. romantic fiction. The visual is not as mm -hmm. central, and therefore you do see a significant number of kind of nerd person mm -hmm. and glamour person where there's not a makeover and where there's not a transformation. But in TV sure. and film, I think it is uncommon because usually they want that matched set look and as i said to you they're both attractive men come on man he's adorable give me a break he's adorable <laughs> yep this is also often a funny show and i appreciated that about it too all right well we want to know what you think about smiley find us at facebook.com slash pchh that brings us to the end of our show glenn weldon thank you so much for being here thank you we want to take a moment and thank our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus subscribers. We appreciate you so much for showing your support of NPR. 
If you haven't signed up yet, you want to show your support and listen to this show without any sponsor breaks, head over to plus.npr.org slash happy hour or visit the link in our show notes. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fatma and edited by Mike Katzif and Jessica Reedy. And Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all tomorrow when we will be talking about plane. <laughs> This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.